Chapter Ten of the Brand of Silence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Brand of Silence by Harrington Strong. Chapter Ten, On the Trail. Farland engaged a taxicab, bade Murk get into it, got in himself, and they started downtown. The detective leaned back against the cushions and regarded Murk closely. He knew that Sidney Prale had guessed correctly, that Murk was the sort of man who would prove loyal to a friend. "'This is bad business,' Farland said. "'It's tough,' said Murk. "'If it was anybody but Sid Prale, I'd say he was guilty. It sure looks bad. And there is that fountain pen.' "'Somebody's trying to do him dirt,' Murk said. "'There's no question about that, Murk, old boy. "'Well, we are going to get him out of it, aren't we?' "'I'll do anything I can.' "'Like him, do you?' "'Met him less than twenty-four hours ago, "'but I wish I'd met him or somebody like him ten years ago,' Murk replied. "'If it hadn't been for Mr. Prale,' I'd be a stiff up in the morgue this minute. Strong for him, are you? Yes, sir, I am. Ah, said Jim Farland. We're going to get along fine together. I was strong for Sid Prale ten years ago, before he went away. And I'll bet that when we get to the bottom of this, we'll find something mighty interesting. The taxicab stopped at a corner, and Farland and Murk got out. Farland paid the chauffeur and watched him drive away, and then he led Murk around the corner. "'Know where you are?' he asked. "'Sure. Right over there is the little shop where Mr. Prale bought me my new clothes,' Murk said. "'Fine. That goes to show that Prale told the truth. Well, Murk, you stand right here by the curb and watch the front door of that shop, and when you see me beckon to you, you come running. Yes, sir. Jim Farland hurried across the street, opened the door of the little shop, and entered. The proprietor came from the rear room when he heard the door slammed. He knew Jim Farland and had known him for years. There were few old-timers in that section of the city who did not know Jim Farland. The man who faced the detective now was small, stoop-shouldered, a sort of a rat of a man who had considerably more money to his credit than his appearance indicated, and who was not eager to have the world in general know how he had acquired some of it. "'Evening, Mr. Farland,' he said. "'Anything I can do for you, sir?' "'Maybe you can, and maybe you can't,' Farland told him. "'You been behaving yourself lately?' "'What do you mean, Mr. Farland?' I've been trying to get along, but business ain't been any too good the last year. Save that song for somebody who doesn't know better, Farland advised him. Change the record when you play me a tune. Yes, sir. Is there anything I can do for you, Mr. Farland? Remember a little deal a couple of years ago? Farland demanded suddenly. I, uh, I... I see that you do. One little word from me in the proper quarter, old man, and you'll be doing time. 
You've sailed pretty close to the edge of the law a lot of times, and once, I know, you slipped over the edge a bit. I, I hope, sir. You'd better hope that you can keep on the good side of me, Jim Farland told him. Is there anything I can do, Mr. Farland? Do you suppose you could tell the truth? Yes, sir. I'm going to give you a chance. If you tell the truth, I may forget something I know for the time being. But if you shouldn't tell the truth, well, my memory is excellent when I want to exercise it. Farland stepped to the door and beckoned, and Murk hurried across the street and entered the shop. "'Ever see this man before?' Farland demanded. The storekeeper licked his lips, and a sudden gleam came into his eyes. "'I... he seems to look familiar, but I can't say.' "'You'd better say,' Farland exclaimed. "'I want the truth out of you, or something will drop. And when it drops, it is liable to hit you on the toes. Get me?' "'I... I don't know what to do,' wailed the merchant. "'Tell the truth.' "'But... there is something peculiar about... "'Out with it. Know this man?' "'I've seen him before,' the merchant replied. "'When?' La "'Last night, sir.' "'Now we are getting at it,' Jim Farland exclaimed. When did you see him last night, and where, and what happened? He was in the store, Mr. Farland, about half-past ten or a quarter of eleven o'clock. He... he bought those clothes he's got on. Pay for them? Yes, sir. Who paid for them? Farland demanded. A gentleman who was with him, said the merchant. Ah! Know the gentleman? I saw him today, at police headquarters. And you said that you never had seen him before, that he was not here last night with this man. Why did you lie? Jim Farland roared the question and smashed a fist down upon the counter. The little merchant flinched. Out with it, Farland cried. Tell the truth, you little crook. I want to know why you lied, who told you to lie. I want to know all about it, and mighty quick. I... I don't understand this, the merchant whimpered. I was afraid of making a mistake. You'll make a mistake right now if you don't tell the truth, Jim Farland told him. I... I got a letter, sir, by messenger. I got it early this morning, sir. Well, what about it? The letter was typewritten, sir, and was not signed. There was a thousand dollars in bills in the letter, sir, and it said that a Mr. Prale had just been arrested for murder, and that he probably would try to make an alibi by saying that he was here last night and bought some clothes for another man. The letter said that I was to take the money and ask no questions, and that if I was called to police headquarters, I was to say the man had not been here, and that I never had seen him in my life before. And you fell for it? You wanted that thousand, I suppose. I'll show you the letter, Mr. Farland, 
There was no signature at all, and the paper was just common paper. I... I thought it was politics, sir. You did, huh? Thought it had something to do with politics, sir. I thought the letter and money might have come from political headquarters. I was afraid to tell the truth at the police station. You mean you have been so crooked for years that you're afraid of everybody who has a little influence, Farland told him. I thought it was orders, sir, from somebody who had better be obeyed. Oh, I understand all right. Well, I scarcely think it was politics. You've been played, that's all. Get me that letter. Yes, sir. The merchant got it and handed it over, together with the envelope. He had told the truth. The letter was typewritten on an ordinary piece of paper, and the envelope was of the sort anybody could purchase at a corner drug store. Farland put the letter in his pocket. Here between ten-thirty and a quarter of eleven, was he? Yes, sir, said the merchant. All right. You remember that, and don't change your mind again, if you know what is good for you. You'll hear from me in the morning. That's all. Jim Farland went from the store with a grinning murk at his heels, leaving a badly frightened small merchant behind him. I know that bird, he told Murk. He's a fence, or I miss my guess. It's no job at all to run a bluff on a small-time crook like that, and now we'll run down and see that barber. They engaged another taxicab and made a trip. Once more, Murk remained outside, and Jim Farland entered and beckoned the barber to him. "'Step outside the door where nobody will overhear,' he said. "'I want to ask you something.' The barber stepped outside, wondering what was coming. This man knew Jim Farland, too, and he knew that a call from him might mean trouble. "'Trying to see how far you can go and keep out of jail?' Farland demanded. "'I... I don't know what you mean, sir.' "'Trying to run a bluff on me? On me?' Farland gasped. "'You'd better talk straight.' Do you expect to run a barber shop by day and a gambling joint by night all your life? Why, I... Don't lie, Farland interrupted. I know all about that little back room. Maybe I'm not on the city police force now, but you know me. I've got a bunch of friends on the force, and if I told a certain sergeant about your little game and said that I wanted to have you run in, he wouldn't hesitate a minute. "'But what have I done, Mr. Farland?' the barber gasped. "'I've always been friendly to you.' "'I know it. But are you going to keep right on being friendly?' "'Of course, sir.' "'Willing to help me out in a little matter if I forget about that gambling?' "'I'll do the best I can, Mr. Farland.' "'Then answer a few questions.' Did you get a typewritten letter this morning with a wad of money in it? The barber's face turned white. Answer me, Farland commanded. Yes, I I got such a letter, and I don't know what to make of it, the barber said. 
I've got the letter and money in my desk right now. There wasn't any signature, and I didn't know where the letter came from or what it meant. Then why did you do what the letter told you to do? Farland asked. I, I don't understand. Farland motioned, and Murk now stepped around the corner. Know this man? Farland demanded. I, I've seen him before. That letter told you to go to police headquarters, if requested to do so, and deny you knew this man, didn't it? It told you not to help a man named Sidney Prale, arrested for murder, to make his alibi by telling that he was here with this man last night about eleven o'clock, didn't it? Yes, sir. And you did just what the letter told you? I was afraid not to do it, sir. I didn't know where that letter came from, you see. Had an idea it came from some boss, didn't you? I didn't know, and I didn't dare take a chance, Mr. Farland. You know how it is. I know how it is with a man who has busted a few laws and knows he ought to be pinched. Did I make some sort of a mistake, sir? What should I do now? Something you don't do very often. Tell the truth, Jim Farland replied. How about this man? He came here with the other gentleman last night about eleven o'clock, sir. He got a haircut and a shave, and the other gentleman paid the bill. Thanks. Sure about the time? I know that it was almost a quarter after eleven when they left the shop. Well, I'm glad you can speak the truth. Get on your hat and coat. I... What do you mean, sir? Am I arrested? No. Get that letter and come with me. I want you to tell the truth to somebody else, that's all. The frightened barber got his hat and coat and the letter and followed Jim Farland and Murk to the corner. There, Farland engaged another taxicab and ordered the chauffeur to drive back to the little clothing store. "'Running up a nice expense bill for Prale, but he won't care,' Jim Farland said to Murk. He compelled the merchant to shut up his shop and get into the cab, and then the chauffeur drove to police headquarters. Farland had telephoned from the clothing store, and the captain of detectives was waiting for him. He ushered the merchant and the barber into the office, looked down at the captain, and grinned. "'What's all this?' the captain demanded. "'It's Sid Prale's alibi,' Jim Farland said. "'These two gents want to tell you how they lied today and why they lied. It is an interesting story.' The captain sat up straight in his chair while Jim Farland removed his hat, sat down, motioned for Murk to do the same, and made himself comfortable. "'About that alibi,' Farland said. "'I know that George Lurton lied about meeting Sid Prale on Fifth Avenue, but you don't. And so we'll let that pass for the time being and get to it later. I just want to show you now that Prale's story about meeting this man Murk was a true tale.' This clothing merchant is ready to say now that Prale and Murk were in his place last night, about half-past ten, and that Murk got his clothes there. 
and this barber is ready to swear that Prale and Murk arrived at his shop about a quarter of eleven or eleven, and did not leave until a quarter after eleven. Prale and Murk got to the hotel, as you know, at midnight. Prale couldn't have gone to that other hotel, murdered Rufus Shepley, and got to his suite by twelve o'clock, not if he left that barber shop far downtown at a quarter after eleven, could he? "'Scarcely,' said the captain. "'Very well. Ask these two gents some questions.' The captain did. He read the two typewritten letters, and he understood how the fear of a political power might have been in the hearts of the two men. He rebuked them and allowed them to go. "'Well, it looks a little better for Mr. Prale,' the captain said. "'But this isn't the end by any means.' Remember that fountain pen of his that was found beside the body of Rufus Shepley? I didn't say that it was the end, Jim Farland declared. I don't want it given out that any evidence has been found that is in Prale's favor. I just want you to whisper in the ear of the court that the alibi looks good and let it go at that. There's something behind this case, and we want to find out what it is. Prale is out on bail, and let it go at that, as far as the public is concerned. "'I grasp you,' said the captain. "'You want these enemies of his to think he is in deep water, so they'll be off guard and you can do your work.' "'Exactly,' said Jim Farland. "'Good enough. I'll do my part.' "'Know anything about a woman calling herself Kate Gilbert?' "'Never heard of her.' Farland explained what Prale had told him. The captain fingered his mustache. "'Several thousand women in this town answer that general description,' he said. "'I'm afraid I can't help you unless you can pick her up.' "'That's what I'll do as soon as I can,' Farland replied. "'If I can get my eyes on her once, I'll trail her and find out a few things.' She may have nothing to do with this, and she may have a great deal to do with it. What do you know about George Lurton? Shady broker, the captain replied. Never done anything outside the law, as far as I know, but he's come pretty close to it. I'd hate to have him handling my money. Well, he lied about meeting Prale. He did his best to get Prale to run away from town. That was a couple of hours before the murder, of course, so it probably had nothing to do with that. But why should he try to get Prale out of town? And, being a man of that sort, why did he say that he wouldn't handle Prale's funds? You'd think a man of his sort would like nothing better than to get his fingers tangled up in that million. I'll have a man take a look at George Lurton. Don't strain yourself, said Jim Farland. I'm going to take a look at him myself, the first thing tomorrow morning. He left headquarters with Murk, and this time he did not engage a taxicab. He walked up the street, Murk at his side, and puffed at a cigar furiously. "'Well, Murk, we've made a good start,' Farland said after a time. "'Yes, sir.' "'How do you like working with a detective now?' "'Ah, oh, you ain't a regular detective,' Murk said. 
What's that? I mean, you ain't an ordinary dick. You got some sense. Thanks for the compliment. I know men who would dispute the statement, Farland told him. They walked and walked, and after a time were on Fifth Avenue and going toward the hotel where Prale had his suite. Suddenly, just ahead of them, they saw Sidney Prale and the man from headquarters. They hurried to catch up with them. "'What's the idea?' Farland asked. "'Needed a walk,' Prale replied. "'Didn't feel like going to bed, and a walk would do me good, I knew.' "'I'll have some things to tell you in the morning,' Farland said. "'But I'm not going to tell you tonight, except to say that it is good news, and I'm issuing orders to Merck not to tell you either. I want you to forget the thing and get some rest.' "'All right,' Prale said, laughing, and then he stopped still and gasped. "'What is it?' Farland asked. "'Kate Gilbert.' "'Where?' There, just getting into that limousine. See her? The girl with the red hat. I see her, Farland replied, signaling the chauffeur of a passing taxicab. This is what I was hoping for, Sid. Go on to the hotel with Murk and guard. I'm going to find out a few things about Miss Kate Gilbert. He gave the chauffeur of the taxicab whispered directions and then sprang into the machine. End of chapter 10. Recording by Roger Moline.